Well, good evening. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all for coming tonight. Today is a beautiful day, isn't it? I think uh, spring has arrived, at least today. <laughs> spring is here. So, so uh, you know how Alabama weather is, just you want it to change, then just come back tomorrow, right? But at least we have spring today. So uh, thank you all for coming this evening, and I hope that tonight is a blessing and encouragement to you as we study the Word together. Let's bow in prayer as we begin our time. Father in heaven, we thank you for your wonderful grace and mercy to us. We thank you for the privilege that it is to come and gather tonight as your people and just to encourage uh, one another to meet together as the family of God. Lord, uh, give us understanding and wisdom as we open your word tonight. And uh, Father, I pray that you would, uh, through the teaching of your word, through us uh, meditating on it tonight, that you would draw us close to you. Uh, may our goal always, Lord, be to know you, to love you, to worship you. And uh, Father, we pray that you would bless this time. May your name be exalted. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we're continuing our study of Ecclesiastes. And before we launch into our passage for this evening, I thought we would kind of get uh, a little uh, lay of the land of where we are. And so we looked at verse 1, which is essentially the title of the book and kind of introduces us to this um, character that is referred to as the preacher or the teacher. And then in verse number 2, we spent some time looking at the, the key word or the theme word of the book that shows up well over 30 times, I think about 37 or 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's this Hebrew word, hevel which, depending on the translation that you use, translates it as vanity or meaningless, futility, something like that. But we're arguing for uh, a sense of along the lines of enigmatic or puzzling uh, with some mixed into that frustration in the midst of that confusion and uh, enigmatic nature of life. And then verse 3 is really the, the programmatic question of the whole book, and that is, where can we find this yitron or profit or gain, advantage, under the sun? In other words, in our life, in our existence, in our finite human existence under the sun, where can we find this ultimate gain or profit? And then last week we looked at uh, verses 4 through 11, which is essentially a poem about the uh, frustrating, uh, enigmatic nature of life. And this is what we came to the conclusion of at the end of last week. Life keeps moving, round and round it goes. Uh, where can we find then ultimate meaning and significance if there's nothing really new and we are so quickly forgotten? Remember in verses 4 through 11, he reminded us that there's really nothing new under the sun. And then at the end of the passage, he reminded us that if we're putting our hope in our name or in our legacy, he says, you're going to be forgotten. So where can we really find then meaning and significance if there's really nothing new under the sun and we are so quickly forgotten? This ultimate meaning and significance cannot be found under the sun. It must be found in eternity with our Creator. And then tonight we kind of begin what most commentators think is, is like the, the beginning of the, uh, a major section of Ecclesiastes, 
that really runs from chapter one through about the middle of chapter six, which is uh, the first kind of set of speeches or a discourse. And it's all on observations on various areas of life in order to demonstrate finite man's lack of ultimate gain. So that, that relates back to that question of verse, chapter one, verse three. Where do we find ultimate profit or ultimate gain? And so much of chapter one through chapter six is Kohelet or the preacher looking at different areas of life, asking that question, can we find profit here in this? Can we find ultimate gain or meaning here in this? And he covers several different areas of life. In chapter one to chapter three, we have personal observations on various life situations. And the first of those in chapter one and chapter two is on human achievement and wisdom. And specifically in our passage tonight, the end of chapter one, we're looking at verses 12 to 18 this evening, is the pursuit of wisdom. Again, applying that question of chapter one, verse three, to the pursuit of wisdom. Can we find profit, gain, significance, advantage, meaning in the, a lifelong pursuit of wisdom. That's what he's looking at in verse 12 through verse 18. And so he says in verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, repeating much of what we read in verse 1 in the opening of the book. He says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge the more grief. So as we go back and go back to verse 12 and look at the beginning of this passage tonight, he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And that word teacher is that word that we've uh, talked about before, Kohelet. Uh, the idea is uh, a gatherer. And that could be in two senses, a, a gatherer of words, of information, or a gatherer of people to convey that information to. And it, it could have both senses involved in this word. But most translations have it as something like the teacher or the preacher. And he says that he was king over Israel in Jerusalem, which makes us ask the question, is this Solomon? And that has been church tradition really since the beginning, is that this is referring to Solomon. And that fits with what we know of Solomon, doesn't it, from uh, the book of 1 Kings. Uh, 
where God comes to Solomon and asks him, I will give you whatever you ask. What do you want me to give you? And he doesn't ask for riches or fame. He asks for wisdom, doesn't he, in 1 Kings. And as we read about the life of Solomon, we see that he explored wisdom and wrote down many proverbs and uh, compiled many sources of wisdom. In verse 13, he says, uh, here's his pursuit now. He's kind of beginning his, his investigation, if you will, of life. His investigation of life with this question in mind, where can we find meaning, significance? So here's his first pursuit, wisdom. He says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. This word mind is literally the word heart, which in Hebrew thought, the heart is kind of the the center of being. It is where thinking is done. It's where decisions are made. It's also where emotions are felt. It's it's what we would re- re- refer to as maybe our consciousness. It is our thinking, our thought processes. So he says, I applied my mind, my thinking, my heart to study and to explore wisdom. So this is his pursuit. And he, and he engages in it with all of his heart, soul, and mind. I'm going after wisdom and and I want to explore, I want to seek after, I want to look at everything that has been done under the heavens. And if you see that phrase there, under the heavens, that is essentially an equivalent to under the sun, which he asked in chapter one, verse three, where is there any profit under the sun? So that's kind of his domain of where he can look is in this realm of human existence. But it's a reminder that under the sun is ultimately limited, isn't it? It's limited. It's a reminder of our finiteness as human beings. There's only so much that we can explore. There's only so far that we can seek. There's only so much that we can gather and know. But he wants to the best of his ability to apply his mind, his thinking to what is available to him under the sun or under the heavens. And he makes this comment at the end of verse 13. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. And this these two words here that are translated heavy burden, uh, we mentioned them a few weeks back because it's a, it's a two-word combination that, it, that comes up several times in Ecclesiastes. Uh, in similar places where we find the phrase chasing after the wind. And uh, it's uh, a way of understanding it is it's a, it's a burdensome task or uh, other translations have it as an unhappy business. A, a very literalistic translation of it is an evil task. And evil in the sense of not morally evil, but hard, difficult, bad. And when I, when I think about this, it really reminds me of the, the curse of futility 
that God put on all of creation in the Garden of Eden when God told Adam, now because you've done this and you've disobeyed me, now from the sweat of your brow, you will eat. And so really from that point forward, all of our labor, all of our endeavors, all of our activity is in some sense burdensome, isn't it? It's, it's toilsome because we live in a world that is under the curse of sin. And so he says, even in this pursuit of wisdom, this is a heavy burden. It's a, it's a difficult task. It's, it's heavy, weighty. And he says, but I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to go after it with everything that I can. And he says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And I want you to notice the word uh, I have seen there, because that brings up the idea of observation, right? Which is a key component of really all wisdom literature, like Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. As you read through Job and Proverbs, and we'll see it in Ecclesiastes too, one of the things you'll notice is oftentimes they are reflections or observations about life, about the way things commonly work. So Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is a general observation about life, that the way that you train a child or raise a child, that influences how they turn out when they grow up. And other things too, like uh, I have seen a lazy person end up in ruin, but somebody who works diligently end up in profit. So those are basic observations about how life works. And so here too in Ecclesiastes, he's using uh, his eyes of observation to see all these things that are done under the sun. Again, in this finite realm of human existence. And here's this conclusion. They're all meaningless. So again, under the sun is in this limited, finite perspective from what he has access to as a human being. And his conclusion is meaningless. Now, this is that word. This is the word, the key theme word of chapter 1, verse 2, which is hevel, which we're saying is something along the lines of enigmatic, frustrating, or even frustratingly enigmatic, puzzling, difficult to figure out. It's confusing. It doesn't always make sense in exactly the way that we want. He says, even the pursuit of wisdom ultimately doesn't satisfy. And you think that's odd, don't you? Because when Solomon was asked by God, what do you want more than anything? He said, wisdom, right? Uh, We go to James chapter one, and James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. God will give to, to all who ask in faith, bountifully, liberally to those who ask. You read across scripture from Genesis to Revelation, wisdom is a good thing, right? Proverbs, the whole book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And uh, the, the one who fears the Lord is the one who is blessed in Proverbs. So throughout the entire Bible, wisdom is to be sought after. It is something good. Proverbs says, seek for wisdom more than rubies or gold, more than the treasures of this world. So what does he mean then when he says, all this pursuit of wisdom, all these things that I've seen, it's confusing, it's frustrating, it's enigmatic. It's a chasing after the wind. See that phrase? That's another key phrase that comes up many, many times in Ecclesiastes. What does he mean by it? Well, I think he means something along the lines of it's elusive and it's uncontrollable. Uh, Think of like wind, like trying to grasp the wind. One, it's elusive, right? You can't get it. If you try to grab the wind, it just slips through your fingers. It's not something you can really grab onto. So it's elusive. Another way of understanding this phrase I saw in one commentary is the idea of shepherding the wind. Well, good luck with that, right? How, you know, you can, sh- you can shepherd sheep and goats and, and pen them and corral them, but you can't do that with the wind, can you? You can't shepherd the wind. You can't tell the wind which way to go or, or control it. So there's, there's a sense of it's elusive. You can't really grasp it. And also you can't control it. Well, that's frustrating, isn't it? So this is part of that frustrating enigmatic nature of that word hevel. It's can't really get your fingers on it. It's, it's here and then gone. He says in verse 15, and this is kind of in a poetic form, which is why it's uh, aligned this way uh, in your Bibles. He says, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Now, he's not here giving a lesson in blacksmithing, you know, uh, or of penmanship or writing. You can, you can straighten out a curved piece of metal, right? Uh, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about life, isn't he? He's talking about life under the sun. And he just finished saying, it's like chasing the wind. Well, chasing the wind, you can't control it, can you? So when he says what is crooked cannot be straightened, he's talking about areas of life that are just the way they are. And you can't change them. You can't control them. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I think he's in this little poem or, or proverb, if you will, he's pointing to two areas of our finiteness as human beings. One is we have finite power or control. One of the themes that we'll see through Ecclesiastes is God is sovereign. We're not. Because of that truth, God is sovereign. We are not. We're going to encounter situations in life that we wish were otherwise, but we can't change them. We can't control them. And I think that's what the first half of this proverb is is talking about. What is crooked cannot be straightened. There are aspects of life that we do not have sovereignty over. We don't have control over. We're finite. We lack power or control. And then he says, what is lacking cannot be counted. How can you count something that's not there? 
It's almost like, how do you know what's missing if you don't know what's supposed to be there? That's kind of the idea is, and I think this is pointing to the fact that not only do we have finite control or power, but we also have finite knowledge and understanding. Some things that we don't know. Some things we don't even know what to know, right? It's how, how do you know something that isn't even there? It's lacking. You can't count it. And so he points to our finiteness here. Then he says in verse 16, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And I think what we need to do to understand verse 16 is to go back to verse 13 for a moment, which is the beginning of his pursuit. So verse 13 says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Now in verse 16, he says, now I have, right? I look, I have increased in wisdom. So now he's coming to the end of his pursuit, to the end of his his investigation. I have increased in wisdom more than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. So again, here's his, here's the target of his pursuit, wisdom, understanding, knowledge. And he says, I've done this and acquired more than others before me. And I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. So what does that say about his pursuit? Well, it was a superlative pursuit, isn't it? In other words, he did this and he did it better and more than others who have done it before him. So if anyone were in a position to be able to give a conclusion on the question, can wisdom or understanding bring us ultimate gain or profit? It would be him. He says, because I've done it more than others and I've acquired much wisdom and knowledge. So it was a superlative pursuit. Then he says in verse 17, then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. So verse 17 almost seems to be saying he took it a step further. Not only did he pursue wisdom, now he's dedicating himself to understanding wisdom. So he's acquired wisdom. Now he's investigating it. He's thinking about it. He's seeking to understand it and all of its connections and also madness and folly. What does that mean? Well, basically it means that he has looked at both sides of the coin, right? So he's looked at wisdom and pursued that as far as he can, and even to the understanding of wisdom. And he's also looked at, um, I don't think we should necessarily come to the conclusion that he sought out to experience madness and folly, but he also looked at the other side of the coin of foolishness, the opposite of wisdom. In other words, he applied himself to an exhaustive pursuit. So he did it higher and more than others before him. And he did it exhaustively in looking at both sides of the coin, if you will, both ends of the spectrum. And here's his conclusion at the end of verse 17. 
this too is a chasing after the wind. So this is like stage one. I sought wisdom more than all those before me. This is a, cha- this is a chasing after the wind. Then he went to stage two. I sought to understand wisdom and even madness and folly, looking at both aspects of it. And he comes to the same conclusion. This too is a chasing after the wind. It's elusive. It's uncontrollable. It's enigmatic. It's hard to figure out. Essentially, I think what he's saying here when he says, in this pursuit of wisdom, it came to be in the end, Hevel, and a chasing after the wind. His conclusion is that this pursuit of wisdom is an unsatisfactory answer to chapter 1, verse 3, which is, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? That's the question of the whole book. Where do we find this gain? Where do we find this profit? He says, I pursued wisdom to the fullest extent that I could pursue it. It does not satisfactorily answer that question of finding ultimate profit or gain. So what do people gain? There's that word, yitron, profit, uh, advantage. Is, is the pursuit of wisdom the answer to that question? And I think he's saying in verse 17, no. It's a chasing after the wind too. Because, he says in verse 18, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Notice what he points to in verse 18. Sorrow and grief accompanying knowledge and wisdom. And I think what he's saying here is that this pursuit of wisdom and this pursuit of knowledge is not simple. If we were to say one thing that Ecclesiastes teaches us is that life is not simple. Life is not simple. In many ways, Ecclesiastes is doing for us what Job does for us with regard to suffering. Job's friends thought they had a simple answer, didn't they? So Job's friends thought, okay, you're suffering. Here's a, here's a formula for that. You're suffering, that means you've sinned. Okay, simple formula. But the whole book of Job is given to remind us that it's not that simple. Well, I think Ecclesiastes is doing something for us along those same lines, but in multiple areas of life that it's not that simple because yes, wisdom is good, but there's also sometimes sorrow and grief that accompanies it. Think about it this way. If you were to ask God for patience, would there not be probably some sorrow and grief that came along with that? Do you think wisdom is any different in the scriptures? Remember what Paul says in Philippians 3? 
I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his what? Sufferings. Paul is saying in Philippians 3, the only way I can really know Christ and know him to the fullest extent that I can is to be a partner with him in his suffering. To take up my cross daily and follow him. So Paul wanted to know Christ. He knew that meant suffering. If we are to ask, as James tells us to ask in James chapter 1, Lord, I want wisdom. Well, how is that wisdom going to come? Is God going to take a little box of wisdom and throw it out of heaven with a little parachute and it drops down and we catch it and we have wisdom? That's not how it works, is it? How do we get wisdom? Well, go back to the very first couple of verses in James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when what? You fall into various kinds of trials and temptations and difficulties, trials, sufferings, knowing that the trying of your faith develops perseverance. So how do you get wisdom? You can't get wisdom without James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, which involves suffering. So that's kind of what he's saying here is, the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of knowing God, there's some suffering and grief that accompanies that, which means it's not just a simple straight line pursuit, meaning that it's a bed of roses the whole way. There are aspects of it that are frustrating, that are confusing, that are challenging and difficult. And so it's complex. It's not simple. It's complex, which goes back to the theme word, right? It's enigmatic. It's puzzling. It's at times frustrating. It's not a simple cut and dry thing. So again, we go back to our question that we asked earlier. Isn't wisdom good? Wisdom is good. So how can he say then that the pursuit of wisdom is hevel, enigmatic, frustrating, or it's a chasing after the wind. Is he saying that the pursuit of wisdom is bad? That's not what he's saying. It is not that the pursuit of wisdom is completely pointless or useless. Wisdom is good. Wisdom has many advantages and can result in many positive outcomes. He's even going to say that in Ecclesiastes later on. But there are aspects of wisdom that are good. It's good to have wisdom. So it's not that he's saying pursuing wisdom is bad. Pursuing wisdom is good. But the frame of reference is the question of chapter 1, verse 3, isn't it? Is there ultimate gain, profit, meaning in this? If your pursuit of wisdom is in order to find life's ultimate profit or advantage or value, chapter 1, verse 3, then your pursuit is misguided and you will ultimately be disappointed. Think of it this way. If you pursue the Bible, is is there any greater source of truth and wisdom in all the world? There isn't, is there? This is the word of God. But... If you were to pursue this 
and memorize it and meditate on it and know the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation backwards and forwards, but you were doing that for its own sake. And in that, you were going to find your meaning and your purpose and your profit, if you will, in life. You're going to be disappointed. What is the truth in this book intended to do? It's intended to drive us to God, isn't it? So if you're pursuing, in other words, I think what he's telling us in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, is that if you're pursuing wisdom for the sake of wisdom, and wisdom is your end goal, then you're going to be frustrated. Wisdom is good, but it's not ultimate. What is ultimate? God is ultimate. And so he's not saying that wisdom is bad, but you can't make it your ultimate in life. One writer put it this way, human accomplishments, including the pursuit of wisdom, are as insubstantial and fleeting as a puff of air. Trying to find ultimate meaning in them is as futile as trying to catch the wind. I think that's really what chapter 1, verse 3, the idea of profit or gain, is really about. Where do we find ultimate meaning in life? What's my purpose? What's my significance? Why am I here? And if we're going to find satisfaction or meaning or value, profit, if you will, in the pursuit of wisdom, and that's our ultimate goal, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying we're going to be disappointed in that. We're going to be frustrated in that. In other words, I mentioned this last week. He's setting out something for us. Can I find profit in this? And he's going to say no. But he keeps doing that throughout the book of Ecclesiastes so that he can point us to the ultimate goal. So this isn't the the be-all, end-all. And he's going to keep doing that in different areas of life because he wants us to find that which truly brings us gain in the end, which really is something beyond the sun, isn't it? It is the one who made the sun, God, our creator. And so he's saying wisdom is good, but that's not where you're going to find your ultimate meaning. And so I pray that uh, we can see uh, from Ecclesiastes how there are certain things in life that are good, and that are worth pursuing, but we can't make those things the ultimate pursuit because that will lead to frustration and disappointment. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to look at your word tonight. And Father, my prayer is that as we continue to walk through this book of wisdom, that uh, we will understand more of what uh, your word is trying to teach us. Help us to learn uh, about life and its complexities and how things don't always work the way that we think they should. But in the end, there is value. There is meaning. There is significance. And Father, I pray that you would help us in that pursuit. Help us to pursue you beyond all things. As our Savior said, seek you first, your righteousness and your kingdom. 
and then let the other things in this life uh, worry about themselves. Father, I pray that you would bless our pursuit of, uh, of you through our study of Ecclesiastes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.